So I'm in my office and I am on the website of PNAS ready to submit everything and I'm on the very final page and it says, are you sure you want to submit this paper? And I'm over the submit button and I'm going to click the freaking button and Rob comes into the office and he goes, don't submit. This is Tolenov. My name is Tolenov. He's a graduate student at Caltech and he's in the final year of his PhD. I am a minus three months left to go graduate student in the Rob Phillips lab at Caltech. What he just described is his boss, Rob Phillips, telling him not to submit an academic article to a journal. Put another way, after months of working to understand and carefully explain a complicated technical project, his boss stopped him mere seconds before the final completion step. Luckily, Tall maintains a positive outlook. Life is hard sometimes. Life is hard. But fortunately, then somebody invented audiobooks, and now life is easy. And wonderful. One of the reasons I enjoy talking to Tall is his completely unreasonable optimism, which of course includes audiobooks. You can listen to them all. Life is not too short. I really believe this. But this isn't just the way he feels about audiobooks. It's also the way he feels about his science. Do you think there are any kind of fundamental limits to the extent which we can generalize biology? As a physicist, I definitely think that it's all possible. Tall works at the boundary of biology and physics, importing theoretical techniques from one field to understand experimental results from another. Tall can articulate well how he builds and learns from these theoretical models, and how he teaches other people to build them. This is a story about the productiveness of struggle, about the specific difficulties of balancing simple models with more complex understanding, and about knowing when to hit send, even when you don't have all the answers. But the best part is hearing what doing physics at this particular boundary feels like. What is the simplest extension that will get you even more, that'll satisfy oh, your heart, green but green dragons and other mathematical monsters? As a theorist, there's no better you want in physics. To take the tools that you have and be able to increase the breadth point of scope. People like throwing markers against the walls, something bad's happened. I'm Heidi Klumpa. I'm Sophia Churun. And this is Not My Thesis, a podcast where we understand science via the hearts and minds creating it. Here we'll be interviewing graduate students at Caltech about what their thesis is, but also what their thesis isn't. We want to understand not just what they do, but how they do it, why they do it, and how the other parts of their life all feed into their passion for science. Heidi again. Just a quick note to say that I'll be telling the story this month, but Sophia will join us again in the credits. Until then, enjoy chapter one of Not My Thesis. I came into Caltech thinking that I was going to do physics. I was thinking condensed matter physics because that's what I did in undergrad in my little research experiences, and I came in here and I quickly realized that nobody at Caltech does high temperature superconductor theory like what I did in undergrad. And as soon as I realized that, I also realized that I didn't want to do high temperature superconductor theory research, which is kind of like mind boggling. It's so obvious in hindsight, but as you're going through it, you're like, this is just the next logical step. I did this for two years, so I should clearly do this for the rest of my life. Obviously, I mean, what else is possible? But then as soon as you can't do it, it somehow gives you perspective to be able to say, I didn't actually enjoy the last two years. What I really thought of the experience upon reflection and hindsight, not as I was going through and everything was good, doing well, and I was getting positive feedback, but it was more of 
the math was exceptionally complicated to the point where I, as a math major, could not follow all the steps. So basically, I was doing a computation numerically that my postdoc told me to do, and then I gave him the results. And he looked at it, analyzed it, said, now check this case, and then I would do it, and check that case, and I would do it. And we got a lot of progress very quickly, but I was never in control of what was going on. So, of course, being the kind of person who believes you can listen to every audiobook, Tall decided to search for his passion by exploring the entire physics and math departments. But he still struggled to find what he was looking for. You're like, oh, string theory, you know, like, mmm. It's, it's like the perpetual debate, like, usefulness, very beautiful theory. What do I want to do with my life? He probably would have run out of professors to talk to, except that he discovered Caltech grad students can work in any department. At first, he thought... There is a physicist in a chemistry lab. What a loser. But when he heard more about what physicists could do in other labs, build better microscopes, design solar cells, he decided to broaden his horizons. He got help from other grad students who would tell him, My advisor is very, very smart. Go talk to them. Or my advisor is this brilliant guy. Go meet with them. But then he encountered some students from Rob Phillips' group who said, Our advisor is very cool. You should go and talk with him. So Tall set up a meeting with Rob, who had a physics background but worked in the biology department. I mean, you have this checklist of what you would like in your advisor, and personalities up there, and having great grad students, and working on cool projects is good, and somewhere in there is being in a beautiful building, which Broad is really, really terrific. Rob met all those things, but he also met things that, after going through the whole physics and math department, I had kind of like unfortunately moved off to the side as less important, like being a good teacher and being just a really cool person. I mean, these are things that you'd love in your advisor, but things that, ah, well, if you have to live with something, you'd rather go for cool research than being able to teach, for example. Tall got to see Rob's teaching firsthand in a course called Physical Biology of the Cell, which showcases all of the unique perspectives that physics brings to our understanding of biology. Things like, what are the number, sizes, and physical properties of most molecules in a cell? Most famously, the Phillips Lab uses statistical mechanics to answer these questions. Now, statistical mechanics, or STATMEC for short, is a tool from physics that leverages really basic ideas from probability to describe how macroscopic properties can arise from microscopic interactions and properties. So there are a lot of macroscopic properties we can measure in biology, like uh, how many proteins a cell makes from one gene. But statistical mechanics elegantly shows why that number is what it is, by showing how it depends on other microscopic properties of the cell, like how strongly individual pieces in this very complex machine that promotes gene expression stick to each other. To Tall, using his background to find out this why for biology's what was the unanticipated combination of usefulness and beautiful theory. So I knew StatMech, but StatMech as applied to biology was totally new to me, and it was beautiful. It's like what you want in physics, to take the tools that you have and be able to increase the breadth and scope of them. So I just, it was amazing. I joined the lab in my head following that class. So the physicist who never thought he would leave his own department found a fulfilling project in the biology division and an advisor that was more than he would have ever asked for. And it was all driven by a question, a question that had never come up in previous research projects, which he answered incorrectly on multiple occasions and whose answer eluded him for months. What kind of science do I enjoy most? Could you describe your most challenging moment in grad school? 
So I'm in my office and I am on the website of PNAS ready to submit everything and I'm on the very final page and it says, are you sure you want to submit this paper? And I'm over the submit button and I'm going to click the freaking button and Rob comes into the office and he goes, don't submit. And I'm like, how could you do this to me? I'm like one second away. This is like evil at this point. And he's like, yeah, but something just came up and there's some aspect of the experiment that we thought something was rather than being integrated into the genome it was actually on a plasmid blah 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 so i do a quick calculation i say but rob it doesn't matter it doesn't matter because the copy number is small so we can get away blah 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 and rob says you know you're right and i agree and you can probably get away on this particular project but we could do these experiments in our lab we're perfectly suited to actually do this it would be so simple and so quick and then we would have, rather than a retrospective analysis of this data set, we would have a predictive theory that we can then go and test. And that's always better. So I was like, ah, oh, I mean, ugh, oh, like I'm pointing to my screen, and you know, why can't we just submit this paper and do that thing, uh, undercutting, blah, blah, blah. So we decided to do it. What followed was the most challenging and difficult and awe-inspiring and beautiful paper that I have ever done in my life to date. I came in at the beginning of this project being like, all right, maybe we can do experiments by next week and then have the results section written up two days later and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's looking at me like, you are totally nuts. I mean, the experiments will take however long they'll take and we'll meet again next week and we'll talk about what failed and then we'll talk about how to make that better. And then we'll meet again the week afterwards, talk about what failed and talk about what, and it took us seven months at the end of the day to do this project that I was told would take two weeks. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience that I do not regret at all. Although had somebody told me that it would have taken seven months right then when I was going to submit, I would have been like, sorry, Rob, and then just <laughs> click the freaking button. <laughs> As Tom learned during his time in the Phillips lab, the physics of very small systems, like a 10 micron cell, are very unusual. First of all, we work at the molecular scale, which is very different from everything that we experience in our daily lives. A lot of what's cool about what we do is that your intuition breaks down and you go into this new world. When you look at really small cells or molecules within them, gravity doesn't matter. Things float. Things are wiggling around and jiggling and diffusion takes place and you put something somewhere and it just goes off a second later. If I like shrink you down to the size of a cell and I ask you to swim in a pool, you would end up like doing a breaststroke and not actually going anywhere at all because you would stroke and you'd move forward and then when you reset, you'd come all the way back to where you started. It would be like a treadmill kind of thing. It'd be super, super weird. In biology, predicting what will happen in this unusual world of the cell is hard both because it is so counterintuitive and because the number and type of interacting components are almost too large to consider everything at once. Even though we can sequence the flu virus every year, we can't predict what the sequence will be next year or what vaccine components will be most effective against it. Anything that you want to do, like develop more efficient drugs or make a better molecule or design a certain circuit, you're going to have to use some intuition that is derived from experience or modeling or theory or whatever. Otherwise, you're just guessing in the dark and just throwing a dart against the wall. Though these strange worlds seem to break the rules of our lived experience, they still follow the laws of probability and thermodynamics. These laws are so reliable, Tolkien write them as equations to make predictions about what a cell can do, 
most often using the tools of statistical mechanics. Just like how in physics, whenever you learn, like I'm going to throw a ball at 30 degrees and it goes a certain distance, and then I throw a ball at 60 degrees and it goes a different distance. And then what you find out is you don't have to throw the ball at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. You already know. You can interpolate what's going to happen in each case. And you can answer questions like, at 45 degrees, that's how I'm going to get the furthest distance of all. So that's kind of what we're trying to bring to biology, this, this ability to tame the deluge of data. This highlights two of the reasons making predictions in biology is so useful. One is that you can't make every measurement. As in the case of throwing a ball, you need to be able to interpolate or use a small set of measurements to calculate what will happen in every other possible case. Think about any process in biology. Like I have this one particular protein and it has 300 of these basic building blocks called amino acids. And every one of these amino acids has 20 possibilities. So your typical protein has 20 to the 300th power different ways to make itself. And that number is bigger than the number of atoms in the universe. It's just mind-bogglingly huge. But these predictions are also important because they allow us to test if our ideas are complete, or as Rob Phillips might say, to see if there's anything that surprises us in the world around us. Each model is an attempt to organize a diverse set of phenomena into one set of ideas, to see if they can explain those phenomena fully. So biologists seem to have cartoons in their head of what system they're working on. And so they know this molecular player A talks to B and they come together and then they go and they activate C and that does other stuff. But oftentimes we lack quantitative frameworks to really be able to say, if I double B, what's going to happen? Is the whole process going to increase twice as fast, four times as fast, or even faster? So what we do in our lab is we try to come in and take these cartoons and mathematize them so that you can really make predictions. Because if you increase b and you predict that doubling b should double the speed, but you actually see that it quintuples it, something else must be going on. And that's what we're after. We're after, like, can our cartoons really characterize these systems like we think we do, or is there missing information? Do you think there are any kind of fundamental limits to the extent which we can generalize biology? As a physicist, I definitely think that it's all possible and you can go as far as you want and do whatever you like. That's, that's the dream. What can I say? He's an optimist. He's learned to be more realistic, though. If you ask me what the most challenging part of grad school is, my answer would be working with experimentalists. But if you ask me what the best part of grad school was, I would also answer working with experimentalists. Because what I had to learn very early on was that experiments take time. And there's simply no getting around that. If you want to do careful, precise biology, you have to understand that it will take however long it takes. And if after a month nothing is working, you're going to have to start over, reorder primers from scratch, start at the beginning, and try again. And if after another month it still isn't working, you have to simply try again. And you continue to try again until everything works and the cloning is done and everything happens properly. Collaborating with experimentalists is absolutely essential to the dream he shares with the rest of his lab, to make biology more quantitative and predictive. Every one of these data points that we showed in this paper were the average of at least eight separate measurements on eight different days, and each of the measurements were the average of at least 100,000 cells. So the error bars were insanely small, and this is probably the best example of how quantitative can biology be, and how well does a simple model match that. And so we ended up with a paper that was something I could have never done by myself. Tall talked a lot about the models he would build, so I asked him to tell me more about how he makes them. 
what do you think is the I guess hardest part about building these models mm. making these predictions so in my mind biology is this constant tug of war between simplicity and predictive power and so I just like everybody else want my models to be simple and beautiful this tug of war exists because we want simple and accurate models but simple models aren't usually accurate usually because their simplicity overlooks something for example, we could try to predict our weather using only our latitude, since very northern and very southern places tend to be very cold. But this simple model would neglect the effect of seasons, the oceans, and clouds, so it wouldn't be very accurate. If we add the seasons to our weather model, we give in to the tug toward a more predictive model. In this case, a model that more accurately describes the weather. But now what? When do we stop adding things? We can always make the model more predictive. For instance, if we added the location of every water molecule in the atmosphere. But would such a model be useful? At some point, we also give in toward the tug to simplicity. We stop adding things so we have a model we can understand, and that captures only the most important features. For the biological models that Tall builds, this is always on his mind. And so I, like for this project, I started off with the simplest model you can imagine. And then I said, well, this model fails because it predicts this very sensible thing that simply is not seen in the data. So then you go one level higher. You say, what is the minimal thing that I can tack on that'll make this model better? And so you do, and you see the improvement. And then you say, well, this model now predicts the following things that we don't see in the data. At this point, you make a choice. Are you satisfied with your model as it is, understanding that it doesn't fit everything perfectly, but it's still nice and simple? Or do you go one level higher? And then the challenge is, how do you extend? What is the simplest extension that'll get you even more, that'll satisfy your heart, but will not be too crazy and require tens of thousands of different interactions to go on? Tall told me about a specific model he built, where careful decisions about how to build the model add a deeper understanding to a biological process. To start, we know that nearly every useful component in the cell is a protein, but how does a cell make sure it has the right number of proteins to do the things it needs to do? Mostly, it depends on the very first step of making those proteins, when an enzyme called RNA polymerase binds a specific location on the DNA. Strong binding at that location generates more messenger RNA molecules, which eventually control how much protein is made from that piece of DNA. However, we don't know which DNA sequences RNA polymerase binds strongly to. This is because RNA polymerase is a large, shape-shifting protein that actually contacts the DNA in more than one place. In fact, there are at least four bits of DNA sequence that together influence how strongly RNA polymerase binds and how many messenger RNA molecules get made. But does each of RNA polymerase's contacts with the DNA need to be strong? Or maybe only a specific one? To answer this question, a group of scientists at UCLA measured the number of RNA molecules produced for many different DNA sequences, sequences that had all four bits of DNA, but with different strengths. To make sure they understood how the DNA sequence determined the number of RNA molecules, they tried to write a model that matched their measurements. They predicted that what mattered was the sum of the strengths of each individual piece. So to produce a lot of messenger RNA molecules, you just needed at least some of the bits of DNA to bind strongly to the enzyme. So they had a really simplistic view where they said that segments 1, 2, 3, 4 all matter independently and additively. So I'm going to take whatever the effect is of segment one and segment two and segment three and segment four and just add them together. And I guess sort of molecularly what it is saying is that because um, this segment of DNA controls expression, the mm -hmm. machinery that's expressing the gene must interact with each 
piece of this separately. Exactly. Even the machinery that comes in has to bind all or nothing. It binds to all four segments or it binds to none of them. This model is super simple and therefore is very easy to actually carry out. As expected, this simple model didn't describe the complex system perfectly, so they added some complexity that likely exists in the real system. Because these four DNA sequences are physically close, they probably influence each other. Specifically, when RNA polymerase binds to one of the four bits, it makes it easier to then bind to another bit that's close by. A more predictive model would include this, saying that binding sequentially makes binding stronger. You can add interactions between every possible component in the system, and then you are guaranteed that you will always fit all the data. That's what they did in their original paper, and indeed by adding a thousand different interactions, you can fit the 10,000 data points that you have. And that has less to do with um, the fact that you're capturing something physical, but just that you've given yourselves more ways to contort your model to exactly. meet your prediction. It doesn't mean it's physically more accurate, it just means it's got more room in it. That's correct. It's like how you can draw an elephant using any model that has five parameters, and you can make its tail wiggle and stuff like that. A good way to extend is to have a physically motivated next step, some some parameter that you know from other experience or from the biology of the system that is actually present, but that you have not accounted for, that you think will fix one of the problems that your current theory is missing. Some prediction that it's currently making that's clearly off. For Tall, these multiple interactions felt tugged too far toward a complex model. To simply say that everything was interacting with everything else, wasn't a simple explanation that satisfied his heart. In fact, this added complexity might have created a new problem. Previously, we talked about adding complexity to a model to make it more accurate, since the model describes complex phenomena. However, adding complexity to a model can also make it less accurate. Why is that? Models explain patterns in your data, but data actually have two kinds of patterns, those generated by the underlying phenomena and those generated by random noise. If your model starts to consider that random noise as an actual pattern, you're no longer learning something useful about the underlying phenomena. In our weather model, for instance, a model that describes perfectly the weather for the entire year might do terribly when it tries to predict the next year. That's because it's not a model to describe weather anymore. Now it's a model to describe weather plus whatever random noise was specific to the year it predicts. Tall's alternative was to add a small amount of complexity, something he felt sure was part of the underlying phenomena that produced meaningful patterns in the data. In particular, there was one interaction he predicted was most important for generating strong binding. And so we came in and we said, well, we know that segments one and three are really important. So Why did you know that? Ah, because we know a lot in biology. We know about molecular details. We know that, just to spit out some jargon, that the RNA polymerase, which is the actual machine doing the transcription, binds very strongly at the minus 10 motif and the minus 35 motif. All that comes back in our modeling to be able to say that 1 and 3 are special in a way that 2 and 4 are not. Mm -hmm. If you modify the model slightly based on this new insight, and you add one additional parameter that specifies the fact that these two interact and they're special, then you all of a sudden go from 40 parameters that can very roughly characterize 10,000 data points to 41 parameters that can beautifully characterize everything. And that's the kind of insight that I think physics brings. It's not the fact that you can always make a model arbitrarily more complex and then understand all the data however you want, but that if you view a system from a certain perspective where things are physically motivated, you can get insights into 
the properties of how these things work. Now we know that the first segment and third segment are important. Even better was the response of his collaborators, who had collected the original data set. They said, this is the most incredible thing that we have ever seen. We have been dying to find something like this for the past three years, and your ability to analyze it and explain how it arises and show that it matches the data is just so satisfying that it gives us a new insight into the fundamental mechanism of how this process behaves. You can want no better thing than that as a theorist. That's like the ultimate dream. Every project that I've done in grad school, because I'm a theorist, has been in a totally different field. And that's awesome in and of itself. It means that you start from zero. Because at the beginning, I worked on enzymes. And I know biology, so I learned about enzymes. And then I worked on ion channels. And I had no idea what an ion channel was. And then transcription factors. And then you work on bacteria or mammalian cells or this or that. And everything is new. My favorite factoid, possibly in all of biology that I've learned, was during the HIV project that I did, which totally changed my life. I learned that influenza is this amazing, amazing virus that we all have to deal with every year. Yeah, amazing in the sense that it's scientifically impressive. Terrible in the sense that it gives everyone the flu. <laughs> Absolutely. And the way that flu works is it basically says, I have 10 days inside of you if I successfully infect you. I have 10 days before I know I'm going to be cleared out. So I'm going to use those 10 days to thrash around and replicate as fast as possible and hope that you infect other people and sneeze at them and wipe off your snot and rub their hand and shake the doors and do all this kind of stuff and give somebody else the flu so I can continue to survive because I only have 10 days. But if you look at the spectrum of viruses out there, they do so cool things. I mean, HIV, for example, which is one of my favorite viruses again not in terms of like its effect on humanity but just in terms of how clever it is in terms of biological mechanism it turns out that hiv is the crappiest virus you can imagine so it's very uninfective it's so uninfective that if i give you hiv positive fluid and i inject it into your body the odds of you getting hiv are only 0.2 percent which is really really obnoxiously small especially when you consider the fact that if i sneeze at you when i have the flu you will get the flu but the trade-off that HIV makes is once you have HIV, you have it for life, because our bodies really can't fight it off. Tall got into viruses because of a collaboration with Pamela Bjorkman, a biology professor at Caltech, whose lab is two floors up from Tall's. I mean, we talk about like experiments that change your life. This is one of those cases that totally changed my life completely, and it's actually reshaped where I'm going to go off to postdoc next year. So Pamela Bjorkman came and gave a group meeting at our group. And she was presenting her HIV system. Everything was new to me. It was beautiful. It was mind-boggling. What she had was basically a way to engineer antibodies. The reason being is that antibodies are our primary defense against these viruses. So you can imagine if flu is like this sphere with a bunch of different spikes, hundreds of spikes going through it. It's like a porcupine then it uses each of these spikes to try and grab onto your cells. And each of these spikes might bind weakly, but because there's so many of them, then collectively they're very strong. It's like Velcro, where every one of the little hooks that it has is very weak, but you put one Velcro piece to another and it's really hard to rip them off. So influenza is the same way. It kind of tries to latch onto you with many, many, many different hands at once. Mm -hmm. And our immune system uses this many hands to also fight off influenza. So 
our antibodies are these Y-shaped things, and they use their two hands to bind to one spike with one hand and another spike with another hand on influenza, and once they have both arms bound, they're basically stuck on there forever. Because one hand might dissociate, but it's still tethered in place by the other hand, so it'll just quickly grab back on. And then maybe hours later, the other hand will dissociate, but it'll just quickly grab back on. And the odds of you unbinding with both hands at the same small instant is very, very low. So influenza gets wiped out in 10 days because our immune system fights against it so effectively. Like Tal explained before, HIV has a different infection strategy, which also means it interacts differently with our immune system. But HIV is a completely different story. HIV is the same size as influenza. It's like the sphere, but rather than having hundreds of quills inside of it, hundreds of spikes, it has 10. And so it's decided to go down this path of, I'm just going to have 10 different binding sites for your cells, which means I'm very uninfective. That's why HIV is really bad at infecting new patients. But it means that once you have HIV, you're going to have it for life because our antibodies are really bad at defending against it. Because these Y-shaped two-handed antibodies that we have can bind to one spike with one hand, but they can't reach any other spikes because they're too few and far apart. So what ends up happening is that our antibodies will bind with one hand to HIV and then they'll let go. And when they let go, they're not tethered in place anymore. They'll float away and it'll be hours and hours and days and days later before they can come back and bind again. So you end up having a very weak immune response against HIV. So to summarize, we can think of viruses as being covered with spikes. These spikes are what make viruses infective since having more spikes makes you more likely to stick to a cell, enter that cell, and produce more virus. However, more spikes also makes you stickier to another molecule, antibodies. The immune system uses these two-handed antibodies to recognize foreign invaders, like viruses. So having more spikes makes a virus more infective, but also more likely to be recognized and perhaps cured by the immune system. So what Pamela was doing was she came and she asked, can we make antibodies that bind with two hands to a single spike. Therefore, we don't care how far apart they are. We don't care how few there are. We get all the goodness and strength of two-handed binding to one spike. And so they made 30 different constructs in her lab that tried to mimic the shape of antibodies, but the capability of binding to a single HIV spike. And in doing this, they found a factor of 100 improvement over typical antibodies in her body, which is great. And so their basic question in the lab was, can we do better? Can we do a 100x improvement over our 100x improvement? Because the better you can get, the less antibodies you have to make for immunotherapy, so lower cost, easier to manufacture, everything is just good, better, lower side effects. At this point in the presentation, Tall started to get very, very excited. Even for Tall. I just remember I was seeing this presentation, everything was just, every slide was jaw-dropping. And then they got to this modeling slide and I was like, really? And so I remember I stood up during group meeting and I was like, this is such a beautiful system, but we can do a much better job in terms of modeling and predicting what you should do from here on out to get the best possible antibody. And I remember that Rob turns and looks at me and he goes, well, he just, he predicted that he's going to hit a home run. So I guess we're going to start this collaboration. And that's how it really began. I mean, this was a project that really ultimately ended up being my favorite project in grad school. Don't tell Rob. This project was about building a model to predict the most effective antibody for fighting HIV. 
This draws upon the usefulness of models we talked about before, where you can interpolate and then reduce the number of measurements you have to make. They were trying to model how they can build the optimal antibody, how big it should be, how stiff it should be, how can you make this thing bind to a single spike as best as possible. Mm -hmm. As so a the, function of sequence? Or? As a function of the size of it and the flexibility okay. of the antibodies. So they made 30 different ones, but each one takes time and effort and money to make. And what we were able to do is predict not just what the optimal configuration should be for Pamela's two-armed antibodies, but then we said, if you add on a third arm, then you can get even better, 100x better than what you currently have. And everybody got very excited, and they got a new grant, and the postdoc in their lab started to actually make these three-arm constructs. And again, as a theorist, there's no better compliment than somebody coming up to you and saying, this is such a cool idea. I'm going to go and spend months of my life to try and pursue it and see if it actually works. This was also a unique moment in Tull's life with respect to his career. It was the first period in my life where I actually acknowledged that I can make a difference in this field of immunology. I can make a difference with people. I can be useful. I can end up with a doctorate in PhD from Caltech and actually be almost as useful as a real doctor. You know, it's like the dream of all PhDs. So whenever I applied to postdocs this past year, I not only applied to universities, but I also applied to medical centers. And I was fortunate enough to get a position at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center in Seattle. And I'm super psyched about going up there and getting to work again on influenza and HIV and seeing what I as a theorist can contribute to this very data heavy field. Oh, it's gonna be so good. I'm really looking forward to it. Since undergrad, my favorite physics author has been David Morin. He's a Harvard professor, and he writes physics books that are so good that you'll take every other physics book you've ever read and just be like, this is trash. I never want to see it again. So I no longer have a second favorite physics author. I just have David Morin, and that's it. Tall told me about his favorite David Morin book, which is called... The Green-Eyed Dragons and Other Mathematical Monsters. Yep, that's right. The Green-Eyed Dragons and Other Mathematical Monsters. So this book is a compilation of about 50 of the most challenging problems that he has run across in the past decades of making books. He's got chapter one, which is just the problems. Chapter two, which is just a small hint for every problem. And then chapter three, which is full solutions all the way through. Not just like three over A is the answer, but here's how you get to the answer. And we're going to build it up step by step. And so what I love about this book is... The prologue is so, so fascinating. It basically says this is a book of 50 of the most amazing problems that David Morin has seen in his life. And if he can give just one piece of advice about how to use this book, it would be, and then he writes in all caps, boxed, don't look at the solutions too early. These problems are incredible, and they're incredibly difficult, and they're incredibly interesting. And once you see the solution, you can never go back. You can never get that aha moment a second time. So do yourself a favor and enjoy and savor the struggle because you will learn so much more if you think hard and struggle through these problems rather than just immediately looking at the solution. He ends his prologue by saying, I suggest that you spend at least a month on any one of these problems. And if by the end of that month you're not making any progress, you've just totally stalled, then take a look at the hint. 
chapter two is just hints and they're very very small hints don't expect to get any kind of aha moment from these hints they're just maybe gonna nudge you in the right direction and then take another week and just think about the problem and struggle and if you're absolutely stuck at that point, then go to the solutions, cover them up with a sheet of paper, and just reveal the first line of the solutions and read that, and then put the book away and think about it for another week. At least before taking one more line of the solutions, because in this way at least you will solve the problem mostly by yourself whenever you get to that stage. In practice, Tal has found everything in the prologue to be true. So I'm now on problem number six, and every time that you solve one of these problems. I, I wasn't able to go to sleep that night. The solutions here are not like pie. The solutions are incredible and they tell you something about the system and about math as a whole and the insights and you're just like, how can anybody have ever thought of this? It's so, so unbelievably amazing. Hearing Tal talk about this, I realized he was describing something that I also learned while working on my PhD at Caltech. When I was in college, there were two categories of problems, problems I could solve and problems I could not solve. Now that I have scraped by in some of the most challenging classes I have ever taken, the categories are different. There are problems I can solve quickly, and problems I will solve eventually. And I guess what you find more than anything else here is that if you struggle through a problem for a month, you will solve it. That's what people don't actually realize. They take this problem and they think to themselves, I just read it, I have no idea how to proceed, what the heck do I do? And there's no office hours, and there's there are solutions, but you don't want to look at the solutions. And what I would say is that this kind of not asking questions and letting yourself be confused and, and enjoying the struggle is super important. And I wish that people would consider it whenever they do, for example, homework problems. And I also wish that graduate students would consider it whenever they host office hours. So my office hours are pretty unique in that I try to be as useless as possible. I should interrupt here to say that Tall has won nearly every TA award offered at Caltech and even had a full spread in the yearbook dedicated to his teaching. So he is not completely useless. What I mean is that whenever a student asks me how do you do problem number three, I ask them, how do you think we should do problem number three? And they stare at me and they're like, I can't believe you just said that to me. And I stare at them and I'm like, I can't believe you just said that to me. I mean, the, the learning is the struggle and that's where it's all about. I totally understand that Caltech asks for a lot. The, the workload is just large. And it's very tempting to come to office hours and get hints and be pushed along the way. But I also think that you can easily do your students a disservice by giving in too easily. Tall's model of useful thinking doesn't sound as exciting as dragon slaying, though perhaps it is no less difficult. So in my opinion, if you're on the board staring at a diagram that you made, a problem number one, and you have no idea how to do it, and if at the end of that hour you've just stayed staring at that problem number one and you still have no idea how to do it, I think that's been such a productive hour when you've been thinking hard and you've not gotten discouraged. Obviously, at some point, if you know people are like throwing markers against the wall, something bad's happened. But if you're actively thinking, you're doing great. And that's exactly what homework should be all about. It turns out the more useless the TA is, the more you get to see the student's mind at work. So one of my favorite parts is when people come after class and ask me questions like, what if you do this? Or what if you look at that case? Or how did you get this? And I just hand them a piece of chalk and I'm like, show me everything that you got. Just explain it all. And then we'll go from there. 
you just see when people get it like they they really get it not just like up here in your brain as this equation makes sense but in their gut of like i understand how to do this now and can replicate it on my own and that is a very nice feeling because it, it's shared with you immediately you you feel the visceral response of they're happy and so you're happy and your last hour of your life made a difference so i really really like that this approach isn't just a good idea, because somebody like David Moran recommended it. The slow building up of intuition and thinking through things carefully, that's what Tal does every day in his research. The way that research actually proceeds is that you build things up step by step, you slowly come to this intuition, and then you reach this really nice, brilliant formula. And the way that all papers are written is, let's take this brilliant guess and then prove that it's correct. So it, there's this interesting parallel between how we would like to be presented something when we are trying to learn it and how we actually present it when we have a six-page limit because we all love PNAS. It's the best journal of all time. So I feel that, that especially in our lab, one of the wonderful things that Rob does is he stretches, uh, stresses pedagogy. That careful process is what gives certainty in the face of the unknown either because you won't or you can't look at the solutions. You're trying not just to get an answer, but you're trying to make sure that you believe in the answer. So that's what I think physics is all about. It's exactly what you were saying about not just getting a result, but convincing yourself in your gut that it is correct. And that's whenever I think you've really solved the problem, whether it's by solving in two different ways and getting to the same answer, using force analysis and energy, or by checking limiting cases or using symmetry. You should, you should get to the end and be like, yes, this is an answer. The units make sense. It feels right. I like this answer. Rather than, is this correct? Question mark, upraised voice at the end of my sentence. Much of grad school is about answering unanswered or perhaps even unanswerable questions. Talking to Tal reminded me that this process can be exciting, as it extends an invitation to our creativity and tenacity and wonder. But it is also a hard and demotivating process. The antidote that Tal kept mentioning, the thing that really reveled in the beauty of science, that reminded him of the worth of all his hard work, and that showed him he mattered, that thing was teaching. You have 50 students looking at you for an hour just trying to understand what you are saying. It's like... You know, you're in the spotlight and, and you're conveying to the next generation all this beautiful stuff that you're so passionate about, at least in Physics 1A. I mean, I love this subject. What more can you want in life? This is like they have, a, well, they don't have to be there. Like, they could go to other sections. They could not go to any section, but they've chosen to be there and listen to you. It's like as if I have something worthy of conveying to these people. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, like, what's the difference between me and them? I've taken two more classical mechanics classes than them and a lot of other physics classes. But it's not like them and a professor, which is just decades of experience. So it's it's really interesting. It's mm. fun and it it makes you happy about, like, look at how far I've come and look at what I know. And look, the fact that I read all those physics books in my summers, it, it pays off. We hope you've enjoyed chapter one of Not My Thesis. This episode was produced by me, Heidi Klumpa, with help from Sophia Charun, the brown-eyed dragon of Not My Thesis. We'd like to thank Alison Kuntz, Ollie Stevenson, Alessandra Zoka, Brenda and Gokul Subramanian, and the hosts of Biosphere, who all provided invaluable feedback and have two hands like an antibody. And many thanks to Tal Enov for bravely agreeing to be the first interviewee and inspiring us to make more beautiful things. 
We wish you all the best in Seattle. Not My Thesis is a Caltech Letters podcast, supported by the Moore Hofstedler Fund and the Student Investment Fund. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and our artwork by Usha Lingappa. Look out for Chapter 2 next month. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, as well as the Caltech Letters website. If you would like to make Not My Thesis more infectious, please share it with your friends or leave us a review on iTunes. Even better, send us an email at notmythesis at gmail.com with questions, stories, or possibly even your thesis.